0: Come on. Yeah, I'm on. Hope you're doing well. Uh, sorry to interrupt your fellowship, but want to get back into our study of uh, the book of John. We're going through the first six chapters. We've come, uh, I feel like I say this every week, but we've come to a familiar passage. <laughs> uh, we come to another familiar one today. Uh, John chapter 4, we'll be looking at basically the first half of the chapter. This is the story of uh, the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus has approached this woman. Uh, He's asked for a drink of water, and really what's going on here is not so shocking and surprising to us, but it would have been very shocking and surprising to the original readers. Why is Jesus talking to this woman? Um, But if you remember, uh, as we've said each week as well, Jesus is doing things. He's doing signs, right, Uh, is what John calls it. It's everything, nothing's out of place, nothing's by chance. Jesus is... um, actions are pointing us, they're signifying something, they're telling us something about himself, or about the kingdom of God, or about salvation, uh, and today is no different. So I'm going to begin in verse 7, uh, and we're going to read through verse 26. A woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink,' for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria?' But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said to me is true. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we confess to you today that we pursue after many things that we think are going to satisfy us. We pursue after any number of things that we think will bring us true happiness and fulfillment, not only do they not, they can't, and that we would see that. We would see that we only are fulfilled through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Back in 2001 baseball superstar Alex Rodriguez signed what at the time was the most lucrative contract in the history of sports. Over 10 years, the Texas Rangers were going to pay him $252 million. Now since then, there have been contracts for more. In fact, Giancarlo Stanton, who plays for the Miami Marlins this past season signed a contract for 13 years, $325 million. You'd be interested to know he will lose $140 million of that in taxes. How about that? But back to Rodriguez. He signs this contract. Everyone at that point believed he was the best player in baseball. He even had the ability to become the greatest player that had ever played. He was a shortstop for the Mariners, and the Texas Rangers signed him in the offseason. Now, since the time he signed that contract, he has been suspended on two occasions for performance-enhancing drugs, human growth hormone, Not the the most recent, he was suspended for the entire 2014 season. Upon his first suspension, he was interviewed. Alex Rodriguez, why did you do this? You knew that it was wrong. You knew that there was testing now in baseball for these things. Why did you do it? His answer was very interesting. I didn't feel like I had a choice, is what he said. He wasn't offering an excuse for himself. He was saying, I didn't feel like I had a choice based on the expectations that had been given to me. I'd been given this huge contract. Everybody said how great I was. I had to produce what was expected of me. You see, I have an opinion about sports today. I don't think so much the problem with sports is the greed, though there is greed. I think the problem is, is that players are so glory-hungry. They want to be known as the greatest of all time. All You can't watch a sports show without, who is the greatest first baseman? Who is the greatest basketball player or quarterback? And so You hear athletes say, I want to be known as the greatest at my position or in my sport of all time. And so that becomes their insatiable appetite. What must I do to achieve that so I'm going to do it? And that's basically what Alex Rodriguez was saying. I didn't feel like I had a choice because I had to live up to these expectations. All of us in here, all of us in the world, Christian or non-Christian alike, we are chasing after something to fulfill us, to validate us, some kind of... Uh, a satisfaction that we can find in ourselves. For us, maybe it's not athletic prowess and affirmation in our athletic ability, but it is something. We're chasing after something. If I could just get that, then I'd be fulfilled and happy. If that would just come my way, if, it, if I could just get that promotion, or maybe if that company would offer me that job, I, then I could really feel good about myself. If I could get the that sixth figure in my salary, or maybe the seventh figure in my salary, then I could provide for my family, we could have a comfortable life, and so we go after that. If I could grab that, then satisfaction would come. Maybe it's money for you, maybe it's things, a house or a neighborhood, maybe it's freedom and autonomy that you think that you must have, but we're all chasing after something. But what it really comes down to in the end, we're chasing it, thinking it will do something for us, but it really enslaves us. We're a slave to the thing that we chase. We're a slave to independence and freedom. We're a slave to, emotion, uh, to a promotion. We're a slave to an amount of money. One of the many things that this passage brings out is what satisfies you or what are you seeking in your life for satisfaction? And Jesus is pointing this out to this woman. He's pointing this out. You are, you are going after men in your life. Did you think that's going to bring about some satisfaction for you? You're looking for worldly things for fulfillment, but they not only do they not fulfill you, they simply can't. You must look to me. I am the one that gives this living water that really does quench this longing that you have within you. The first thing that we see from this passage, Jesus teaches us a lot of things. It's about satisfaction. He teaches us lessons about evangelism. But he starts with this woman by endearing himself to her. He doesn't just go right in and say, oh, you're, everything you're doing is wrong and you need to clean it up. He starts a relationship with her. He starts talking with her. In verse 7, as I mentioned at the beginning, this has been a very shocking verse to the original readers. Without going into the whole backstory, suffice to say, Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They didn't hang out. Okay? They, weren't, they weren't friends. But even more than that, Jesus, it was, very so, it was a social taboo and a social no-no, I guess, for a, a man to be speaking to a woman in public such as this. He's speaking to a Samaritan, and he's speaking to a woman. Uh, Rabbinic traditions uh, tell us that it was forbidden for a man to give a woman any kind of greeting. Typically, a husband would not even address his wife in public. But Jesus doesn't care about all that. He's endearing himself to her. He speaks to her. He asks something from her. He was not treating her as most people inevitably had. She was going to the well that day, not when everyone else was there, but when she had to go by herself, we assume that she was some sort of a social outcast based on her lifestyle. This was not someone that people wanted to associate themselves with, yet Jesus pursues her. He draws himself even more into her her good graces, asking for a drink of water and then offering her something as well, this living water. His request is very simple. Can you give me something to drink? And then he, in return, offers her living water. You don't have to keep coming back to this well uh, each and every day. That that sounds great to her. How can I have this? Of course, she misunderstands exactly what Jesus is trying to say, just as Nicodemus misunderstood what Jesus was saying in the previous chapter. He's offering her something spiritual, and she just assumes that it's physical. She thought that Jesus might have some literal water, some magic water, maybe a pitcher that never ran out. This would be great. I won't have to keep coming back here each and every day. On the surface, if we were to compare chapters 3 and 4, it seems as though Nicodemus and the woman at the well couldn't possibly be any more different. In a lot of ways, that's true. But I think there's actually a lot of similarities behind these two passages as well. Just think about Nicodemus. He was educated. Everybody liked him. He was revered and respected. He lived a morally upright life, probably far better than you and I could ever hope to live. He was wealthy. He was well respected. He was outwardly very good. He had authority. He belonged everywhere he went. There wasn't one place that someone would try to turn someone like Nicodemus away. Now, the woman at the well, she wasn't educated. She was a moral and social outcast. She's going to the well by herself, probably because no one else would want to be seen with her. She was morally a disgrace. She's not respected. She has no authority, and she didn't belong anywhere that she went. But in a lot of ways, these two people are not so different. On the surface, they are polar opposites. Nicodemus is trusting in his law-keeping, his strict observance of it, thinking that That's what's going to satisfy me and make God love me. He's looking for something external to find acceptance and hope. And that's exactly what this woman is doing as well. He's satisfied in his social standing. He's satisfied in the things that he does. They're both looking in the wrong places, but they're both looking. Jesus comes in to this conversation with this woman, and he endears himself. He does not treat her as she's used to being treated. He's kind. He talks back and forth with her. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He's talking about this water, but he now is going to expose her sin. He he starts with a conversation, a relationship, but it goes deeper. He's trying to tell her, Every single day you come to this well and you draw water and symbolically every single day you're going to relationships thinking that they can satisfy you but they can't. It may quench it for a minute but you've got to come back tomorrow for some more water. Your relationships and your immoral living, it might quench it for a minute but then the next day you're going to want it again and again and again. So number two, Jesus now exposes. Yes, it's the first time that Jesus has spoken to this woman, but clearly he builds rapport with her very quickly. She trusts him, it seems. He now asks about her husband. She's been married five times, and the man that she lives with now is not her husband. She's living a life of serious outward sin. That's clear. Jesus exposes her. You would imagine this is a cause of great shame for her, you would think. She now believes that he may be a prophet for knowing these things. Jesus is showing her and he's showing us, what are you thirsting after? Woman, these are the relationships that you think are going to bring you fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness, but they're not. They're not doing that. Have you ever been really, really thirsty before? But we all have. You've gone for a run or maybe you've done some yard work on a Saturday for several hours and you're really thirsty. (laughs) It's one of the best feelings in the world. You're really thirsty and you get a big old bottle of water and you just down it. It's an insatiable thirst. But you go back out and you work for a few more hours and what do you need again? You need another bottle of water. Jesus is trying to show this woman this is exactly, you're continually coming to this well You're continually coming to get this water. In the same way, you're continually going to the well of these relationships. Maybe they're all sexual. Maybe it's just something that she wants to be taken care of. But you're going to this same well, and it's not satisfying you, just as you have to come to this literal well. Aren't we just like this woman? And the things that I mentioned earlier, we crave to be satisfied and fulfilled and happy in the things in this world. But not only do they not satisfy, they can't satisfy you. So one, one job doesn't, so you look for something else. One relationship doesn't, so you look for another one. One, I got that car, I got that house, and it didn't do for me like what I thought it would, so now something else is, i got to go after something else. It's what she's doing, and it's exactly what we do. You're trying to quench this longing that's within you with things that don't quench and can't quench. Jesus is saying, I understand this deep longing that you have, and I'm the one that can can satisfy that. You can't find it in the places that you're looking. An obvious question, I think, that this passage asks is I love Jesus. I've been following him, I have faith in him, but I don't always feel this satisfaction that it talks of. Have you ever felt that way? I, I love Jesus, but I don't... Sometimes we talk of the, the feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction in him, but I, that hasn't been my experience of him. Why not? Well, it doesn't say anything about an adequacy in him, but often it's our sinfulness that always trips us up from experiencing him that way. Lastly, Jesus encourages Jesus doesn't leave this woman in her predicament. He doesn't just expose her sin and then send her on her way in shame and sadness for what she's done. Before we look at exactly what Jesus says, I think he shows us a lot about how we can evangelize our friends, talk to people. He gives us some great directives here. What does Jesus first do? He talks to this woman in ways that she can understand. He doesn't use this Christian jargon that might not make sense, and he doesn't use all these grand terms. He relates to her. He uses an illustration that she did every single day about drawing water. He gets on her level. He talks to her in ways that she can understand. He doesn't talk down to her. He clearly says, don't you see the need that you have? I think there's a lot we can learn from that as we talk to others that don't know Christ. He's honest and direct. He doesn't offer her something easy. He doesn't overlook her sin. He's being honest with her about the predicament that she's in. He treats her as a person. He doesn't care about the social faux pas. He doesn't care anything about what he should or should not do. In speaking to a woman, he talks to her. He has a relationship with her. This isn't a performed speech that he gives. He's keen. He understands people. And he speaks to her very winsomely and compassionately. He doesn't offer some easy believism. He doesn't just sweep her sin under the rug. He calls her to change. And lastly, he shows a great sensitivity for her. He doesn't care about social pressures and standards. He loves her well. So what does Jesus offer her? Well, he offers her living water. He offers her the gift of God. Just as he was imploring Nicodemus in the previous chapter... You need a new heart. You need to be born from above, literally, is what it means there. He's saying, he's saying to this woman, I have water that you need that will quench the, the desires that you have within you. But it's only found in me. You've got to come to me. The Messiah that, you, that she begins to speak of at the end of the passage, I am he. I'm the one that you've been looking for. I'm the one that's been talked about. I am superior to Jacob, this person that you revere, this well, uh, whom he, the well that he had dug. I'm superior because in me is salvation. <clears throat> when will we stop chasing after earthly pleasures and treasures and rest in Jesus? People in this world, we can look around, they have every material thing they could ever want. Just look at the people of Hollywood. They've got all the fame, they have the fortunes, they have the beautiful homes, they have the beautiful looks, and they seem to be the most miserable people out there. They're dissatisfied and they're troubled. John Calvin says, He who does not aspire to the kingdom of God, but rests satisfied with the conveniences of the present life, seeks nothing else than to fill his belly. In like manner, there are many persons in the present day who would gladly embrace the gospel if it were free from the bitterness of the cross, and it brought nothing but carnal pleasures. Why are you seeking Christ today? Are you seeking him because of the earthly blessings you believe he can give? Are you seeking salvation? Are you just seeking satisfaction for your longings? What are you looking for in your life? I can't answer it for you. What are you looking for in your life to satisfy you like only Christ can? What, what well are you drinking from? <laughs> the well of earthly pleasures or the well of Jesus Christ and his love? Let me close with this story. and I, Let me warn you on the front end. It's a bit graphic, but it illustrates very well, I think, this point. You probably all remember listening to radio personality Paul Harvey. Uh, he tells the story of an Eskimo. Eskimos had, have wolf problems very often, or so I'm told. Of course, I don't understand. but uh, This is how an Eskimo kills a wolf. The account is very grisly, but it offers fresh insight to the consuming and self-destructive nature of sin. This is how an Eskimo kills a wolf. He takes a knife blade, and he dips the knife blade into blood, and then he freezes it. And then he puts more blood on the knife blade. He freezes it again. And he does this over and over and over and over and over again, sometimes as many as ten times. And he sticks the blade into the ground, the handle first, so that the blade is sticking out. The wolf has a very keen sense of smell, and eventually one wolf is going to come and investigate what's going on with this knife. It wants that blood. It smells it. It's enticed by it, and he begins to lick this knife. And more and more it gets through each layer and it's taking this blood in and it loves it and craves it more and more and more. And finally it gets to the very bottom and it begins licking this very sharp blade. But it wants this blood so much that it now can't discern between the blood that had been on the knife and its own blood which is now severing its tongue. And in the morning the wolf will be dead right next to the knife blade. This is exactly what our sin is doing to us. We don't see it. We crave this sinful life. We crave this sinful activity, perhaps, that we think is going to fulfill us and satisfy us, and we want it over and over and over. Maybe, well, something new is going to provide that satisfaction and fulfillment, but little do we see what it's actually doing to us. What are you craving more than Jesus? And what would you tell someone that doesn't know him? What if you had just a few minutes? you had a dear friend or maybe even someone that you didn't know, you had just a few minutes to talk to him about what Jesus means to you, what God has done. You wanted to passionately and winsomely tell them about Jesus. What would you say? I think Jesus gives us a great directive in this passage. Don't you see, friend, loved one, whoever it may be, you're pursuing after things in your life that you want to satisfy yourself, but you're be- you're becoming enslaved to them. And don't you see how they're killing you? I love a Savior. I have a Jesus that provides for these deepest longings. Come to know him and love him. Exposing to people that their deepest longing can be met in Jesus Christ, not in the things of this world. Just like this wolf, they will meet a... The most gruesome demise. What is it for you that you wish you just had a little bit more of? And the plan that you have for your life would really begin to take shape. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. Come to this Savior. He is here, and he he satisfies our deepest longings. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the story as you so compassionately spoke to this woman who needed you. She was so lost in her sin, Lord, but you were you were kind, you were generous. And Lord, you gave her yourself, and that is what we need. Lord, we confess again that we pursue after so many things that are sinful, they're wrong, they are replacements for what you are for us, and that we would not do that. We would come to you with our deepest longings. It says, Come to you all who are weary and heavy laden and you will give us rest. We would claim that promise, Lord, and you would help us to rest in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.